Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, Season 2. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight, one of us tells the other a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and her surrounds. Now, Alistair, we don't have an episode from last fortnight to reflect upon, but I believe you shared a clue with me. I did indeed in the teaser episode, and have you had some more time to reflect upon the glowing obituary in the Sydney Gazette from 1834 and figure out who it might have been about? Uh, I have. In fact, I've been thinking about it a lot. And I was thinking governors when we were discussing it a couple of weeks ago, and I think that's wrong. Uh, but you made it very clear. I shouldn't say I think that's wrong. You made it very clear that was wrong. And so I was thinking about uh, other significant figures worthy of respect in the early colony. Um, and I was thinking about water. And I had this idea that maybe it's an Aboriginal person. And so I was thinking Benelong, who went to London across a very large body of water and then came back across an equally large body of water to um, Gadigal country, what is now Sydney. Yeah, maybe it's about Benelong. It's, it's a very good guess. Uh, it's definitely not about a governor, and it is about a, a more ordinary member of society, I guess. Uh, and the very interesting thing is, it is also about a, a black man, but he is not an Aboriginal man. Yeah, and on that note, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And in my case, it's the Wiradjuri people of the plains west of the Blue Mountains. And the land on which this week's history takes place, which is the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Sovereignty was never ceded. All right, so in this episode, Jed, we are going to be discussing the life of Billy Blue, who was the man uh, featured in that newspaper obituary. Have you ever heard of him or do you know much about him? I think he's come up in the previous story of yours, right? Uh, possibly. Or some other Sydney history podcast I've listened to. Uh, I know a little bit about Billy Blue, very little bit. There's a some sort of tertiary education institution in Sydney named after him, I think. Yeah, yeah, there and, is. And um, if I'm not mistaken, he was a boatman that ran a punt from uh, Blue's Point, or I think, yeah, yeah, which is named after him, I presume, yeah, uh, to Sydney, yeah, in the early 19th century. Yeah, yeah. So uh, because he's got. Blues Point named after him, and quite a lot of roads around there, even a even a pub. Uh, he's he's one of the more kind of prominent uh, figures of the early uh, settlement to feature in Sydney geography. So often people have heard of him a little bit, uh, and perhaps for that reason, also because we've got excellent listeners, I'd like to give a shout out to both Hugo for initially recommending this topic, and then also Julie uh, on the Facebook page for calling me out on some cropping that I'd done that missed a little bit of Billy Blue history on one of the photos that we posted. (laughs) Uh, And then also also recommending that we uh, do a Billy Blue podcast. Uh, So that's that's been uh, excellent. I'm really glad to to get one done on recommendations. And then also I would like to give special thanks to uh, Josh, uh, Josh Huey and his mom Josie for getting me uh, the Black Founders book by Cassandra Pibus. Pibus? Um, and bringing it to me while I was in quarantine uh, in the hotel after just arriving in Sydney so that I could get some research done and kind of hit the ground running in Sydney. Yeah, I reckon you could would have had time to prepare a few episodes in there. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it begins. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. 
Anyhow, while doing my uh, research for this episode, uh, which is roughly about the African-American men who were part of the original settlement in Sydney, the colonial experiment, I found out that there were 11 members of the first fleet who were in fact black African-American convicts, uh, which I really wasn't aware for the majority of my life. And I feel like probably most people in Australia slash Sydney probably haven't heard about before. Uh, So is that something that you ever come across? No. I think what's interesting for me there is that they're American. Yeah. Like, uh, it seems a... It's the long way around to get from America to Sydney. Right. To go from, like, to, to be enslaved from Africa, move to America, somehow end up in Britain enough to be convicted to be transported to to Sydney. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wouldn't know if that happened in their lifetime or their ancestors. But, um, right. yeah, just the fact that in their own lifetime they went from America to the UK and then around via Asia direction to Sydney. Yeah. To end up. Yeah. Well, possibly end up or possibly finish the job and get back to the U- the US. Well, yes, or back to the UK. And yeah, quite quite a few of them did serve out their sentence and then go go back on ships, I think mostly to the UK. So it's yeah, it's it's amazing the kind of the distances that people were traveling on very slow boats at this time in history. Um, and the book that uh, I was reading about uh, these black settlers was really interesting because, like the vast majority of convicts uh, on the First Fleet, they were illiterate and had therefore very little kind of written about them or nothing by them and very hard to find information about these people. So uh, this researcher um, from, I think, Sydney University had gone through and like trawled through every single logbook or any kind of anything to find some information about these settlers and there's really very little that we know about most of them uh but you can kind of piece together and they had somewhat somewhat ordinary lives for uh, early uh, convicts in the first fleet so some of them kind of eventually got a little bit of land some of them went back to the uk as we mentioned but a couple of them um were, were more prominent figures in sydney society uh uh, there was a man called Black Caesar who uh, had a really tragic experience uh, in Sydney. He was incredibly powerful and a prominent kind of worker, but he also became was punished hugely over time and became actually a bush ranger, the first bush ranger in Sydney society. Mm. This isn't going to be an episode about him, but he's definitely a very interesting figure. I'll hold my questions then. Yeah, there's also uh, John Randall who um, uh, ha- had enough training uh, with a rifle to be an important kind of bushman and part of exploration parties, early exploration parties around Sydney. So he actually was kind of with prominent members of uh, the administration who were looking at new pieces of land and became a member of the Rum Corps, uh, where he was kind of lived a fairly good life, uh, getting many of the benefits of being in the Rum Corps until that kind of all fell apart. Mm. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, it's easy to fall into the trap of assuming that Sydney, early Sydney society was a case of like two racial, dominant racial groups, the indigenous people and the white settlers being from, you know, what's now, I guess, the UK and Ireland exclusively. But it's just, it's just not the case. And I mean, especially as the town grew and it became, you know, another trading stop um, in terms of the, for the British Navy and the various European trading companies, the racial diversity would in these port towns was huge, and especially a place like Sydney where you could get rich quick, I suppose. Yeah, there was always different people coming and going, 
but I think the uh, whether it's whether it's a case that the recorded history gives undue like credence to the the white settlers, or whether it's because that's just the way it's taught, or it's my own personal ignorance. But I think for a very long time I was sort of laboring under that false pretense. Yeah, it's really interesting that you mentioned that, Jed, because a big part of Australian history in the kind of latter half of the 19th century and then through really the majority of the 20th century was putting really explicit emphasis on the whiteness of uh, Australian colonial settlement and that there was a white Australia. And so lots of this nuance, especially in the the early uh, history of the colony, is really more or less wiped out. And actually, it's interesting in this case of uh, Billy Blue that this happened to him on an almost comical scale because obviously there's a lot of landmarks in Sydney named after him and so you can't just ignore him completely in your history books or in, in if you're someone interested in writing about Sydney history. But even uh, by the 1970s, the first biography of Billy Blue was written by someone who really, although they couldn't ignore the evidence that he wasn't completely white European, they really went to great extents to try to argue that he really wasn't completely black, even though it, there's there's actually a, a portrait painted of him at the time. He's quite obviously a black man. Uh, but they went to great lengths to argue that he was actually not predominantly Negro, perhaps part Carib, and then went to find some kind of uh, quote from the next generation of his daughters who were never uh, referred to as coloured, and named as the finest young women in Sydney town. And this was taken in the 1970s as, as, as evidence that they couldn't possibly be back black because you wouldn't refer to someone as the finest young ladies in Sydney town if they were black. And therefore, it was all kind of a big misunderstanding and there probably wasn't a black man called Billy Blue, which there definitely was. Wow. Yeah, so I think that a big part of, of that history it, it still kind of bleeds into today and we still tend to think of... Uh, of the history of, of colonial Australia as, as a white history. Yeah, definitely. So tell me more about the man, the myth. Yeah, so the, the man and the myth. It's, it's an interesting story because, again, with, the, with the, the myth and the man, you have very little known about uh, Billy Blue, especially his early life. Uh, so we don't actually know where he was born or when he was born. And the, the issue of his age is quite an interesting one because people get very interested in it by the time he's in Sydney because he lives for a very, very long time, perhaps up to almost 100 years old. But there's very, there's no, no one knows precisely how old the man is. He might have just been haggard. Uh, well, he, he was definitely around a, a long time. He was possibly born in the Caribbean. Really, the, the main thing we know about his life before he was, he's in London and he finds himself in a court being sentenced to transportation comes from later court accounts when he talks about all of the um, amazing things that he'd done previously. And a lot of it is uh, military history. So he, he, was, uh, he says that he was involved in the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War in America, that he was then uh, back in Europe fighting against the uh, Spanish and the French and then back in America again, fighting on the side of the British in the American War of Independence. So unlike a lot of the black African settlers who came in the First Fleet, um, who joined the uh, British Army during the War of Independence, because the British Army actually tried to entice Africans to leave the slave masters in America and join the British Army and that, and promise them freedom in return, which tragically didn't end up all that well uh, for, the, the, for the few slaves who were able to escape and escape the punishment that was kind of inevitable if they were ever caught. They then ended up uh, often catching diseases in a poorly run English army and then obviously losing the war. 
but they were eventually kind of moved to London, which is how they would end up in London. Or a large amount of black uh, African loyalists who joined the British army were moved to Nova Scotia Mm. and then eventually ended up in uh, Sierra Leone, uh, where a settlement was uh, created by the British government. And actually William Dawes, who you will remember from a previous episode, became the governor of Sierra Leone uh, with a lot of relocated black loyalists from the American uh, War of Independence who had come over from Nova Scotia and also from London after finding difficult living conditions in London after the war. Yeah, right. I mean, this is exactly the kind of racial diversity that spread through these port settlements that I was talking about. Yeah, yeah. And also the kind of, I mean, really astounding history that we tend to not hear very much about. But the lives of these people is kind of hard to fathom and incredibly fascinating stories, I'm sure, all over the place there. Yeah, so many of which were unwritten, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. Uh, so, But Billy Blue had been involved in the British Army for a lot longer than these people who had just joined during the American War of Independence. Uh, we don't really know if he was originally a slave or a freed slave or how he ended up in the army uh, in New York, but that did quite often happen. Sometimes uh, for wealthy people who wanted to avoid being uh, pressed into service, they would kind of send a, a slave uh, in their place or all kinds of different things could happen to have got uh, Billy Blue into the British army. But he ends up after the American War of Independence in London, uh, like a lot of black Africans, and in a difficult position because obviously he's uh, not from there. He doesn't have much of a support structure. And also the economy is kind of struggling in London in that time. They've just lost the, the war. There's a lot of return servicemen who are all looking for work. There's not necessarily that much work for them. And so it was definitely a difficult time for a lot of people in London. And uh, Billy Blue finds himself in two very interesting uh forms of work and the uh, first one is uh, as a leader a leader or commodore of a press gang uh, and this uh, press gang work where he was the commodore is where he uh, kind of first got the nickname that he was then to uh, hold all the way through his time in Sydney as the old commodore and now I don't know Jed how much you know about press gangs but I thought we could go into them a little bit here how much do you know about impressment very little yeah, I didn't know that much about it either. It's so, so to give a quick overview, a press gang was a group of men who were paid in cash by the Navy board for every new kind of, in inverted commas, recruit that they could seize by force for the British Navy. Uh, so they would roam the taverns around ports, picking up intoxicated stragglers, perhaps giving them a whack over the head and forcibly take them on board a ship where they would wake up the next morning and receive an unwanted welcome to the Royal Navy. Right, so they were already out at sea, so they were stuck there until the ship at least made port again. Yeah, so the interesting thing was they might, they probably hadn't actually sailed out yet, uh, so it wasn't even necessarily that they were kind of forcibly on the high seas and they couldn't get out of it, but there were actually laws in Britain saying that it was kind of the form of conscription of the day, and during times of conflict the uh, British Navy needed men. Uh, they also found that the price that could be demanded uh the wages that could be demanded by capable seamen would be very very high knowing that there was really high demand and also during times of war there's often quite a lot of trade going on so there would also be a lot of private opportunities and so they they needed men they didn't think they'd be able to get them uh just by offering wages and so they used force to con basically conscript men uh but in the days before kind of centralized bureaucracy birth dates you know ways of finding people on national television telling them they'd been called up 
the best way to kind of get these uh, skilled sailors on board, because you probably didn't want a farmer from Yorkshire, uh, was to go around port towns where there were sailors and uh, kind of forcibly drag them on board when they kind of weren't able to defend themselves. And there was some sort of legal protection for the Navy for this. It wasn't just a bit of a secret. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't. It was, which is kind of, again, unbelievable in a part of history that, that you don't hear so much about. Uh, but they, during times of war, it was, it was accepted uh, legally that you could forcibly impress people into service um, and that they, they kind of, if they didn't have their regular rights guaranteed in the Magna Carta and all of that to not, not like happiest corpus and all that, that kind of was out the window in these specific circumstances, they could just legally be forced into service. And he was, uh, Billy Blue was the man doing the forcing. Yes. Uh, so he uh, was one of the men doing Bastard. the forcing. Well, he, you got you to gotta come around to him eventually. That he needed, he needed a job. I guess there were a lot of people doing it. And uh, he, um, yeah, he managed to probably make some good money doing that for a little while in London. They did change the laws uh, kind of in the eight, uh, 1790s. And so that kind of fell away a little bit. Um, and the other line of work that he ended up in was as a lumper on the docks of, of London. I imagine you might not know what, there's so many odd job titles back in the day, what a lumper is. <laughs> yeah. No, I missed that one. Yeah, so a lumper uh, was physically demanding and poorly paid work. Sounds In it. which you, yeah, yeah, it doesn't sound good, does it, a lumper? Uh, in which you unloaded ships of the barrels and sacks of spice and sugar and exotic goods that were kind of coming into the port of London and brought them uh, to the riverside warehouses. Yeah, as a massive uh, barely sequitur, one of my many interests is containerization because prior to containerization, the work of the dock was just insane like the the amount of manual handling that all these goods and produce required was sort of unfathomable in today's world yeah and what's interesting about it is that people effectively carrying sacks off the ship you know that wasn't just a a 17th or 18th century phenomenon it lasted well into the 20th century um and i mean with the help of cranes but effectively yeah we were just moving odd shaped groups of items be it bales or barrels or whatever until the until the sixties, yeah, yeah, and definitely the history of kind of Darling Harbour and Botany Bay is very tied to yeah to that practice that really was until very recently yeah as you said people moving with physical labor and also you know some winches and things like that but really a lot of manpower moving barrels and odd shaped items on and off ships and trying to fit them into into the ship in the best way possible. And Billy Blue was one of these many, many men. Yeah, yeah, one, one of the many. Um, and so in London at the time, uh, to compensate for the poor pay that you uh, received as a lumper, it was kind of kind of a widely accepted trade practice that the, uh, the lumpers would kind of nick a little bit of the produce themselves as part of the process of bringing it ashore. Mm. And uh, fascinatingly, a parliamentary inquiry into port conditions in London at the time actually acknowledged that uh, that which used to be called plunderage was, at least in a considerable degree, a mode of paying wages at the current time. Yeah, right. And so merchants turned a blind eye as a matter of course and allowed for roughly 2% of the ship's weight to disappear as leakage or spillage during the process of unloading. It appears that Billy Blue uh, made the most of this 
uh, and it's really interesting because he managed to actually, he was a very entrepreneurial man in many ways. And so he created a, a second business actually as a chocolate maker. At the time, a chocolate was a, a kind of consumed as a drink and sugar, cacao and spices were the three main ingredients to make this drinking chocolate. And all three of them would have been coming into the ports of London. And so to uh, to make the most of the uh, produce that he was able to get as a lumper, he then he created you know a little bit of vertical integration and started uh, selling selling chocolate and probably doing quite a good job for himself. But he must have come unstuck at some point, for he found himself on the first fleet. He did indeed, and in fact, it was just that he he took a little bit more sugar than the uh, boat owners and other hires up at the dock were were happy to accept. And he pleaded his case in court that this was kind of accepted practice. And in fact, as we said, there was parliamentary inquiries that acknowledged that it was accepted practice. Uh, but it was the quantity that he was taking that uh, that really kind of riled people up and that ended up with him getting it transported to Sydney. Yeah. Be difficult to uh, fall under the old personal use caveat when you run a chocolate <laughs> shop as well. Yeah, I do like that part. Though. I think that's a pretty... Pretty amazing story to have have your little chocolate shop on the side from your ill-gotten gains. Yeah, so Billy Blue wasn't actually part of the first fleet. He uh, kind of moved, uh, came to Sydney in the 1790s after spending a number of years, I think it was about five years, on uh, rotting prison hulks in uh, London, as so many convicts did. Mm. They kind of had too many people convicted in courts that they wanted to transport. They didn't have proper prison facilities. Anyway, so by the time he got to Sydney, he only had a few more years uh, of his sentence still to serve. He served them out and uh, ended up uh, in living in the rocks as a uh, kind of going back to his uh, lumping trade. He worked as a waterman or boatman with a, his own small boat, kind of ferrying people and goods back and forth uh, from uh, ships that arrived into uh, Sydney Cove uh, to Circular Quay and the area. Well, Circular Quay might not have existed, but it didn't exist at that time. But, you know, to the area around what is now Circular Quay. Mm. So Billy ended up living in the rocks initially. Uh, which was a ramshackle area, uh, kind of crowded and uh, with high degrees of poverty at the time. And he actually kind of was falling out with uh, with powerful figures in the rum corps. He didn't get along with them. There was a, a court case actually where uh, a, a rum corps, it was, it was a jailer, but a hard man around the rocks associated with the rum corps uh, was caught sleeping with Billy's wife. And uh, he ended up in court. Uh, Billy ended up taking him to court uh, on charges of rape. The rum call was pretty powerful at the time and managed to kind of laugh him out of town, uh, kind of insinuating that he had a wife who was not at all faithful to him. And so that kind of went nowhere. But it does show us that at least, at least Billy Blue was not getting along with the rum call during this part of Sydney's history. However, as we know, Jed, the power structures change in Sydney uh, with the arrival of of Bly and then our man Macquarie. Uh, but it was actually, uh, it was Bly who really helped uh, Billy out because during his uh, short and tumultuous reign, uh, where he wasn't a particularly popular figure, he actually did, did some good work for Billy Blue and gave him exclusive rights to ferrying passages around Sydney Harbour. Feels like the free market might have done a better job than that than giving one man exclusive rights. Yeah, but there's nothing like exclusive rights in the early history of Sydney. <laughs> so lucrative. Yeah. One of the few uh, few things that the colonial regime had to offer, really. Yeah, yeah, and the, I don't the ability to enforce exclusive rights. 
And we don't know exactly why these were given to Billy Blue and throughout his uh, throughout his kind of illustrious career in Sydney, it's not 100% clear why he got a lot of the positions of power um, and economic privilege that he did. It seems like he, he must have been a very kind of unique and uh, charming character who had a lot of people skills because he ends up doing very, very well. So by the time uh, uh, Lachlan Macquarie arrives as governor, Billy's already got his ferry fleet running really efficiently. He ends up with a fleet of at least seven ferry boats, which is pretty impressive for for an ex-convict. He forms a a strong friendship with with Governor Macquarie. And actually, uh, ferries uh, Macquarie and his wife and child Lachlan around uh, quite a lot in Sydney. It forms a very close relationship with uh, Lachlan Macquarie's wife, Elizabeth. Uh, And he also... uh, in his kind of jaunts with, with Macquarie, uh, manages to procure some land grants, uh, both at Miller's and at Milson's Point, so on both sides of what's now the, the Harbour Bridge, with one of them being around at, at Blues Point on the north side of the harbour, uh, which is just one point to the west of uh, of Milson's Point, right? Where So one point west of uh, where the Harbour Bridge hits the North Shore. Yeah, well, it's strange because there's Blues Point and McMahon's Point, which seems to be the same point to my eye. Yeah. But, um, I guess they're, I mean, they probably were more distinct once upon a time and it's been terraformed somewhat. So I guess if you count McMahon's point, then it would have to be two points west of the bridge. Yeah, I wish I had the absolutely definitive story on that, but it's always kind of befuddled me as well. It seems two names for one point in my mind as well. Uh, and McMahon is a slightly later settler. I think that actually the families of both might be intertwined. I think children possibly of Billy Blue end up marrying into the McMahon family, though you might not want to quote me on that. But anyhow, I think that possibly that point ended up with two names, but obviously for our purposes in this episode, we're much more interested in calling it Blue's Point. And I'll continue to do so. <laughs> Excellent. So he's got he's got quite considerable land holdings uh, on the North Shore, and he, he also managed to get an, a number of significant positions within colonial society as a kind of customs inspector of the time. So he was a waterborne constable and guardian of the shore uh, around Sydney Cove uh, and kind of acted as a watchman looking out for smuggling or the kind of arrivals of ships and different clandestine activity that could happen as, as people and goods moved in and out of the port. And as part of this position, he was given a famous hexagonal stone house uh, right at the edge of the domain, quite close to uh, what's now the Sydney Opera House. Uh, which features quite prominently in paintings of the time and which we'll definitely have some images of on social media coming up. That's if you don't crop them out. Yeah. (laughs) No more cropping now. (laughs) So at this time, uh, Billy Blue was was really quite a successful businessman and prominent uh, man in society in Sydney. And sadly, his fortunes did uh, dip over the kind of second half of his uh, time in Sydney. He was caught red-handed actually smuggling goods into Sydney, even though his job was to be catching the smugglers. I feel like it would be a rare uh, water water constable or inspector of customs at that point in time that wasn't also smuggling. I mean, I feel like it might go in with the lumping that, you know, your effective pay is really in, in theft that the effective benefits of being the customs inspector is the fact that you can smuggle more readily. Yeah, I think a regulated system of smuggling was what was going on in Sydney at that time. And it's fairly obvious from the the court cases and proceedings after Billy's court that he's he's kind of a 
a small to medium-sized fish in a giant conspiracy that goes all the way up to the top to kind of lucratively bring goods into the colony. Not to the crown, surely. I don't know whether the king was personally involved. I would highly doubt it. Uh, but definitely Heavens. Some, some prominent members of a Sydney society who might You've even... cracked it wide open, Taylor. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> de- de- definitely uh, members of society who probably were actually serving on the jury that was uh, to convict Billy Blue for this smuggling activity might well have been the higher-ups in the kind of smuggling ring that he had been caught acting within. He, uh, after being caught, uh, kind of when asked to give names of who else was involved, ominously ran his finger across his throat in a slitting motion, made it quite clear that he feared for his life if he gave any evidence against anyone. And he was let off relatively lightly by, by, these, uh, by these members of the jury who probably were also involved. Okay. Sadly, his uh, ferry business also uh, became decidedly less lucrative as the free market opened up to some degree and there were other competitors uh, bringing people uh, around Sydney Harbour. And so although he still owned some significant portions of land on the North Shore and was continuing to ferry uh, people around, he wasn't quite as uh, wealthy as he'd previously been. And his latter years were also characterised by a kind of zany and wildly popular character role that he played in the streets of Sydney, where he would uh, dress up in a top hat Mm. uh, and a kind of like tattered uniform and he would board any ship that newly arrived into Sydney Harbour and personally welcome the uh, captain in his official capacity as the Commodore uh, to Sydney. He also walked about the streets twirling his stick and demanding that men salute him, that children doff their hats and that women curtsy, which apparently the the majority of uh, Sydney society did because if they didn't they apparently suffered a cascade of abuse this regularly commented upon actually by visitors to sydney who are kind of blown away by this character who's just walking the the streets of this kind of nascent town and and also quite confused about the the response that he's getting from the other people in sydney who are quite quite happy to accept his role in the society and kind of seem to have lovingly adopted him as, as a member of society it's kind of hard to know their it's because it definitely sounds like also a man who's like struggling with it, fading fortunes. His wife had also died and he was probably struggling with that. So the, the story that we, we get from the newspapers is this lovable ruffian who's kind of adored by the people of Sydney and got such a glowing obituary as our, as our clue for the episode uh, indicated. Mm. But it's, it also seems like there might be, you know, a deeper story there that wasn't reported in that way. Yeah, this is the bit of his uh, history that I'm more familiar with. Uh, the well, I sh- I'm not really from familiar at all, but um, definitely when you first mentioned him, I was like, I'm pretty sure he's a loose unit, like he was a an alcoholic on the street or at one point in time or something. So this sort of speaks to that characterization of him as a sort of, I want to say man about town, but uh, it's it's a bit different to that. In fact, it almost comes across as something that the type of behavior that would be entirely unwelcome. Like it makes me think of drunk dickheads at at the pub, you know, forcing people, barely willing other people that are there into their sort of repertoire, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. It doesn't seem like the kind of behavior that people would necessarily enjoy, except in those strange circumstances when people come to like, to decide that they really like it. And I think that, that... like small towns sometimes in America have like these really eccentric characters that the whole town kind of comes to love as their own. And they, they have some kind of thing that they do on the street that everyone's kind of like, Oh yeah, it's that guy. He's always there doing that, that bizarre thing on that street corner or something like that. 
I, I don't know if it was a situation like that. It definitely seems it seems like there were there were a good amount of people who got into who it. Found his behavior very endearing. Yeah. Mm. Um. So much so that just before his death, when he was on his deathbed, a, a portrait was painted of this kind of infamous man who also also his 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 age was kind of very very out of the ordinary that he'd lived for so long. So this was by this was the eighteen mid eighteen thirties. Uh, he was at least people think at least about sixty years old when he was transported um, wow. in the in the seventeen nineties. So he's a very very old man. So he would have also been a complete anomaly in that in that sense at this time in history. Yeah, and I think you can get away with a lot more in terms of eccentricity when you're older, especially if you're kind of a grandfatherly figure to most of the colony. Yeah, yeah. And so despite the fact that he hadn't actually been around since the first fleet, the obituary that I read out gave a somewhat misleading clue that it said that he, he's kind of been around since the very start of the colony. And in the minds of basically everyone who was living there, he probably felt like he had. I think that's what got me onto Ben along. Yeah. I was like, it's cryptic. I'm into it. Yes, absolutely. So so I think, as you said, he's probably kind of this grandfather figure for the colony as well. And so this portrait was uh, painted by, I think, an aspiring artist who hoped to kind of up his uh, potential clientele by painting this picture of uh, Billy Blue that a lot of people would be interested in seeing. And you can still see that today. Uh, I think in the... I said the It's somewhere at the archive of New South Wales. I'll have to, I'll have to look that up. Maybe at the end of the episode, I can tell you where it is. <laughs> Yeah, so that's uh, that's the story of Billy Blue that I have to tell you today, Jed. Uh, as you mentioned, there are a lot of places in Sydney that kind of bear his name, including the Billy Blue College of Design, which is actually in Ultimo, uh, so not necessarily where he's first associated with in on the North Shore. There uh, also, somewhat related, is the um, William Blue College of Hospitality Management, which might not be particularly interesting to you or I, except for this interesting tidbit, that they have a discounted fine dining near the MCA called William Blue Dining, where their training chefs and uh, kind of uh, hospitality staff will serve you a classy three-course meal for a mere $45. Yeah, those things are run by all sorts of culinary schools, and it's one of the main disappointments in my 30 years so far that I've not yet been to one of them. Yeah, so I think we'll definitely need to take Jamie and John to the William Blue dining experience. Book it in. <laughs> Nothing says Alistair and Jed like a discounted three-course meal. <laughs> With a historical reference. Exactly. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly for the historical reference. Um, and you mentioned a pub earlier on. Yes. And you probably assumed that I immediately knew which one you were referring to, but I don't, and I want to. I was going to say, the other thing that you definitely want to know about is the pub, uh, which uh, historically was called the Old Commodore Hotel on Blues Point Road at the corner of Lavender Street and Blues Point Road. Oh, it's it's the Commodore, isn't it? It's now... Well, you do know it. It's now called the Commodore. Mm. So the reference is uh, slightly more obscure, but it's named after Billy Blue. For his time as a press gang leader. Yes, because he well, he then kind of adopted that moniker throughout his time in uh, Sydney and re- insisted that everyone referred to him as the, the uh, old Commodore. Can't begrudge a man that. Nope. Uh, so then the obviously Blues Point Road, Blues Bay and Blues Point. And then also obviously on Blues Point, there's the Blues Point Tower. Do you know yes. the building that I'm talking about? Of course. Of course. The f- and your feelings about the building? Um, I mean... I think that it's a clever piece of architecture in the sense that uh, it's a Seidler building and it's um, 
you know, it, it dominates the skyline so much that it, it's a talking point. So in terms of, uh, you know, getting your name out there, I think that the architect did a wonderful job in terms of, uh, you know, d- destroying the amenity of the visual amenity of Sydney Harbour. I also think it does a wonderful job. Yeah, it's a very controversial building, that one. But I do have to say, one of the main complaints I've heard about it is that when you're viewing the Sydney skyline from Vaucluse and Watson's Bay, it's the only uh, thing that interrupts the plane of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Oh, yeah. And so for that, I kind of love it, you know. <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've kind of come around to it a little bit as well, uh, if, if for nothing else, because it's now heritage listed and it's one of those brilliant heritage listings where the reason why it's heritage listed is because it's so controversial and unpopular or, like, or strange. Like those buildings that are like heritage listed because they were so poorly constructed or so transient in their design. Yes. <laughs> now, and now you can't get rid of them? Yeah, yeah. So I got I got a brief snippet from the uh, the heritage listing, which is I think quite funny. It says that it's a conspicuous though unpopular example of the international style, uh, internationalist style. This landmark building was innovative in its day and intended as a forerunner of a whole movement in architecture and high density housing. So a little bit of praise there. Uh, intention and all of that. But then the next line, its construction was a factor in a popular revolt against such types of development, particularly in this area. It was voted in a popular poll, the building most Sydney siders would like to see removed. Yeah, I think Dominic Peretet was saying last week that he wanted to get rid of it. So yeah, it's uh, it's still in the headlines. Yeah, well, I, I don't know if he'll be able to now that it's heritage, uh, since it's heritage listed. No, I think it was his fantasy, fantasy <laughs> list of buildings to remove. But I think that there's something definitely there to be said for it since... If it led to less buildings of that ilk being built, then perhaps it is worth celebrating. Yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it has a somewhat more interesting story behind it, I think. Apparently that area was uh, fairly... It was going to be rezoned as an industrial area. And then Harry Seidler thought, I don't think that's a good idea for such a beautiful piece of land. We should make it housing. And obviously his way of building housing was that high-density big building that he built there. And it was planned to build a lot of them around the area. Anyway, the industrial uh, zoning went never never made it through and the local residents insisted that no more buildings of that type were built anywhere near there. Great views, no doubt, though. Oh, I can only imagine. Through your tiny windows. <laughs> well, that my story... My, that my story... Well, that, my friend, is uh, the story of Billy Blue uh, and a brief history of the area of the North Shore uh, associated with him. I hope you enjoyed it. I did very much. Thank you so much for sharing. We started in far away from Sydney, but we got there sooner rather than later. So congratulations on yeah, your efforts there. It's the only way to tell stories. <laughs> yeah. Start miles away. <laughs> yeah, no, it was really enjoyable. And um, I especially liked that you've uh, you covered a topic that we've not only touched on previously, very briefly, but um, that I knew something of, but there was a great amount of room for furthering my knowledge. So thank you. You're absolutely welcome. And and now it is my pleasure to look forward to an episode in two weeks' time from you. And I was wondering if you happen to have a clue for me about what it could be about. I do. And despite this being our first episode back after a very protracted break, I have the clue on hand and ready to go. How about that? Efficiency. (laughs) Okay. Now, my story is one that took place in every suburb and town across the state of New South Wales. It's a story that is as relevant today as it was 100 years ago. It's a story that's part of the mythos of Sydney, 
and I think it tells us a little bit more about ourselves and our city than we'd care to admit. Oh, okay. So, so big brushstrokes there. Uh, just because I the other day was looking at a, a lawn bowling uh, place and being like, <laughs> there are so many of them everywhere. Uh, I'm like, maybe now I'm thinking some, maybe something like that, like one of those things that you don't really think that much about, but they're just everywhere. That is a great idea for a story. And now I really <laughs> want to do the story of the, the proliferation of lawn bowls clubs, the rise and decline of lawn bowls in Sydney. Yeah. Brilliant. I'll, I'll, do, I'll do that. It's got to be an epic story. Uh, but uh, some, some, if they, every town, so it can't be something like the trams because the, I don't, they're not in every town. You said in, in all of New South Wales, was it? Or all of Australia? New South Wales. All of New South Wales. Um, yeah. So some kind of institution like that, I'm thinking, maybe the, maybe the local pub or hotel or something like that, the history of, of the accommodation in in pubs. Well, I did say last week it would be You're about... Drinking related. Uh, drink, a, a very, at the very least tangentially drinking related. <laughs> so you might be onto something there. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking... Well, also bolos are also a place where you could have a drink. So really, there's not many places you can't have a drink. <laughs> it makes it hard. It makes it such a great clue. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing about these uh, institutions of historical renown. Well, you've got a couple of weeks to dwell on it and we'll see if you come up with anything. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City, as much as we enjoyed making it. It's really good to be back. If you've got any questions, comments, complaints, or you'd like to know more about anything that you heard on our podcast, you can reach us through our Facebook page, Stories from Sydney, or you can uh, find us on Instagram at Stories from Sydney, or by email, uh, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. And if, like Hugo, you have a suggestion for a story that you think we'd all enjoy, then please email us with your suggestion. But please do let us know in the subject line if it's for Jed or Alistair so that uh, the other person doesn't read it and spoil the surprise. And if you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support us, the best thing you can do for us is leave a rating and a review on whichever platform you download your podcast from. Uh, Otherwise, subscribe, tell your friends about it and spread the love. See you next time for my story from Sydney. And as promised, I'd like to circle back and let you know that the portrait of Billy Blue is at the State Library of New South Wales. The website for the State Library also has an excellent short biography of Billy Blue, along with teaching materials for anyone who'd like to teach a history lesson on Billy Blue. And if you would like to know even more, then I would recommend Cassandra Pybus's uh, book, Black Founders.